Um, let me just share a couple of things with you. This is called a tipping point, and it's um, a message that I shared a while back in our church. And, you know, um, it's amazing because most of us think that majorities rule. Like, you tend to take on the mindset of the country that you live in. And we, most of us were raised in a democracy, so we tend to feel like in order for God to move, we, we, we need a majority. And so we emphasize, like, uh, things that are not wrong, but, like, we think, you know, we, if we could get a million people to go to D.C. and pray, certainly God would move. But the truth is, God said, find me a man. Find me a woman. Find me a person. Are you with me? And we forget that we can become the tipping point in history. You know, Rosa Parks, who, you know, who is a, a 45-year-old single black woman. She's you know, been sitting in the back of the bus for years. And one day, her recollection is that one day she's, she's tired. She's com- coming home from work. And she, she looks, she gets on the bus. And there's an open seat in the front of the bus. And she sits on that open seat, and a man comes to her, you know, the bus driver comes to her and says, Ma'am, if you don't move to the back of the bus, I'm going to call the police. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, do whatever you need to do, but I'm sitting here. And the man repeats his, his plea with her, if you don't go to the back of the bus, I'm going to call the police. And this is her recollection, this is what she said years later. She says, I was, being, I was tired of being judged by the color of my skin, and then, instead of the integrity of my heart. And I refuse to move. And what happened is, is that history moved. See, sometimes when you don't move, history moves. It's not your, it's not your circumstances, but your stances that determine your destiny. So you can't always help what happens to you, but you can always help, help what happens in you. And she, you know, how many of you know that, that she wasn't part of a movement? There was no movement. She created a movement. She pressed, she pushed on the rock of history and history moved. And I just want to encourage you that you are not powerless. You are not powerless. You are a royal priesthood. And you can always tell how close you are to the palace by how you respond to injustice. How do you respond to circumstances? See, you can tell the size of a man by the size of the circumstance it takes to discourage him. And I, I want to encourage you, like, you are not powerless. God is not looking. He's not looking for, he's not, he's not looking for a, a majority He's looking for a man. He's looking for a woman. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth, looking for someone who will, whose heart is fully His. And what I'm getting at is this. Some of you stood today, and you're, like, you're feeling powerless. And I, I know that feeling. We've all had that feeling. We're like, the circumstances seem bigger than you. But I want to tell you something. It's like, the only reason the circumstances look bigger than you is because you're not, you're, you're not looking at God in you. See, the, the, the struggle is, is that we often inventory, we're we're so aware of what we don't have. All of us. Like, we think, you know what? If I was smarter, if I was wealthier, if I was better looking, if I was younger, if I was older, and you know, the list goes on and on. We we have this inventory of what we're not. And I want to tell you something. God doesn't care what you're not. The lesson of the little boy's lunch, you know? Jesus looks around and it says that he knew, he knew what he was going to do. And he turns to his disciples and he said, we're, we're going to feed all these people, these 3,000. And he turns to one of his disciples and he says, so where are we going to get the food? And he goes, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, if we were to spend $10,000, it wouldn't be enough to feed all these people. And besides that, if we had the money, where would we buy it? That's basically what he says to Jesus. And Philip goes, well, this boy's got a lunch. <laughs> you know, 3,000 men, not including women and children. A boy's got a lunch. And I'm sure Peter looked at him. I think it was Peter. Probably looked at Philip and thought, stupid. 
Because after he says the boy has a lunch, he says, but what is that to so many? Well, I mean, even to suggest that a guy's got a candy bar and there's three, four, five thousand people to feed. I mean, that's a stupid statement. And Jesus said, have the boy bring me his lunch. And, you know, the boy has, we know, loaves and fishes, right? You know why they didn't eat, you know, tacos and enchiladas? Because the boy had loaves and fishes. You didn't get what I'm saying. See, see, Jesus multiplied what he had. Not what he wished his mama would have packed him. Some of the reasons why we feel powerless is because we're inventorying the wrong thing. We're inventorying what we're not. We're like, I wish I, I wish I would have had steak. I wish I would have brought lobster. So Jesus just like, bring me what you have. Listen, I can feed a multitude of what you have. And you're like, I, I don't even have enough to feed me. You know, Jesus is all, if you give it to me, you'll have, you, you'll have more than enough. I, I love Jesus in that story because he understands women. He knows about mothers. Because you can imagine if the little boy goes home and says, Jesus stole my lunch. It's going to get ugly. We know that, right? Come on, ladies. It's going to get ugly. Jesus stole my lunch and he fed a multitude. Well, I don't care who he fed. He took your lunch. That's why they collected like 12 baskets. And you know, the Bible doesn't say this, but we know Jesus is wise. He sent those 12 baskets home with the boy. Jesus stole my lunch, but look what he brought. But here's the point. It doesn't matter what you're not. Listen, just stop telling yourself what I'm not. Like, you have to understand, like, it doesn't matter what level of, of life that you're at. There's always someone better. There's always someone who has more. There's always somebody who has, has more talent, more anointing. You know, I feel like I've really grown in my life. Like, you know, 20 years ago, if you would have told me that I was going to be in this place in my life, I would have been like, you're crazy. Because I, we're, we're, I feel like I'm, I'm here by God's grace, not by anything. I, I mean that sincerely. Like, there are people who are really intelligent, really, really gifted, really, all, all that stuff. That, that was not me. You know, I didn't. I, I couldn't read when I graduated from high school. That's the truth. I read on the third grade level. I, can't, I still can't spell. And, and, you know, and every time I look, like, I've written six, I'm on my seventh book. I'm like, I, I see that as like not an arrogant statement. Like, if God can do that with somebody who can't spell and who, and who nearly flunked out of school, well, he can use anybody. And the point is, is that if, you know, the Lord said to me, if you will write, if you will do what you can do, I will touch, I will touch what you do and I will make it, I will, I will make what you couldn't do. I will do what you can't do if you do what you can do. Are you following me? And I, I can tell you, like, it doesn't matter where you are in life. Like for me, like, I write books. There's always someone who's a better writer. And I can, I can measure myself to other people. Oh, man, I wish I could write like Rick Joyner, you know? I wish I could write like Jack Hayford. Well, just do what you do. You know what I'm saying? There's always a better preacher. There's always someone who works in, in more miracles. There's all, I mean, I, I'm telling you, I could just be depressed every day by the amount of people that are more talented than me in my own school. I have students to get up and share for 10, 15 minutes, and I'm like, dang, that person's a better preacher than I am, and I've been doing this for 30 years. And what I'm getting at is that God doesn't care what you're not, and you're gonna, all you're going to do, listen, if you become, if you, if you imitate someone else, you become unnecessary. Because God wants an original. 
He's looking for you to be an original. And the truth is, that if you'll be yourself, if I'll be myself, there's no one who's as good at being me than me. Listen, I can, I can actually be the best in the world at me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, Listen, it doesn't matter how good you are, you'll never be me. You'll never be me. You'll never have my exact experiences. You'll never have my exact thought life. You'll never have my exact gift mix. I mean, I'm the only, I am the absolute masterpiece of me. If I, if I will be genuine. Or, you, I'm not, you understand I'm not saying being arrogant. I'm saying, I, I, God is, he, he so thinks you're amazing. And the goal is to be the best you that you can be. And as soon as I, as soon as I, you know, as soon as I um, compare myself to Ron, if Ron's being himself and I'm comparing myself to Ron, there's no way I'm going to measure up because I can't be a, a good, as good a Ron as Ron was created to be. Do you understand what I'm getting at? And so, so I, I'm always going to be, I'm always going to be second, third, fourth, or fifth best. You know, How, you know, I love being with Bill Johnson. I've had to learn something to stay out of discouragement and to be. I, I'm just being totally transparent with you, and I'm not kidding. Bill, Bill is an amazing speaker, amazing. And I mean, he he honestly is my favorite speaker in the world. And I'm with him. I've been with him for 31 years. And he's also like much more famous than I am. He's written more books. I mean, all I have to do is just think about how my life compares to his, and it's really it can be very discouraging. And I remember one. I remember when I first came to Bethel. And Kathy will remember this. The first year, you know, Bill would get up and preach, and then I would be like Sunday night or whatever. I'm like, oh, I don't even want to. Now, who wants to follow that? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like when Bill pauses, everyone goes, "That's amazing." When I pause, they're like, he's out of things to say, poor guy. <laughs> you, you know, and following, and following that is not, it has not been easy, just to be frank. I, I, I do good with it about 98% of the time now, because I have to discipline myself. Like, Bill needs to be the best Bill that Bill can be, but I cannot be Bill. And God's good with me not being Bill. And I, I re, and I remember the first year was really, really tough because I wasn't in that mode. And I mean, I lay awake at night thinking about how insignificant I am compared to this man. I mean, literally. And I mean, I would, I would be like, why am I even here? You know, you know how you can get when you're comparing yourself to someone, especially someone who is amazing. And, you know, who's a fifth-generation pastor. And I'm like, what chance do I have? <laughs> I mean, I was hatched, you know? My, I had two dads didn't like me, you know. He's had five generations of people who passed. His grandfather's, his great-grandfather, his, his father, his family all loved him. My family didn't even like me. So, you know, it's just that, you know, I mean, you could just start comparing yourself to people's circumstances, and pretty soon, you, you, you're totally, you might as well just give up. And the first year, I was just, I'm honestly, frankly, tormented with it, like, Every time Bill would do, the better Bill would do, the worse I would feel. I don't know if you've ever been in a place like that. It's like I would rejoice that he's amazing and then feel depressed at the same time. It was really, really a tough season. And then one day, so, so one day I'm preaching, and I, think was, I think it was on a Sunday morning, actually. I think Bill was traveling. This is like the first or maybe close to this, going into the second year I was, I was at Bethel. 
and I was preaching, and I was, I was imitating Bill. I was trying to be deep. Seriously, I was trying to be deep, and I'm, I was thinking, like, all week long I was preparing for the message, and I'm like, I have to say things that are going to be, like, stunning. Because that's what Bill does. He stuns people with, like, you know, and of course, if you don't have those, you have to find someone else's, right? <laughs> so, so my message was basically an accumulation of some, some other things people had said that I put in a message and then added some of my own words to it, you know. And I, I got done preaching that, that morning, and you, you know what it's like when you're not being yourself? You don't feel good about it. And I sit in the front row after I got done preaching, and they're, they're, somebody's leading prayer, and the Lord says to me as clear as day, if I wanted two bills, I would have cloned him. I did not bring you here to be Bill. I brought you here to fill in where he's not, what he's not. I brought you here to be what he's not. And you keep trying to be him, and why would I bring you here if I wanted two hymns? And I'll tell you, it did, I mean, that was the beginning. I have to still say it was a process. But the process was me going back to that word the Lord gave me. Every time that jealousy would rise up, every time discouragement would rise up in me, I would say to myself, I would remember that word. I'd, I remember the Lord said, I didn't make two bills on purpose. I didn't even make him a twin. So please stop trying to be Bill and be yourself. And that, that freed me. And it, I, I do have to say that there were still down times. There were still times when I would forget that and I'd be, ugh, back to trying to imitate Bill. And, and the Lord would just be like, remember what I told you that first year you were here? Remember I told you? Please stop doing that. Please stop trying to be Bill. And, and I, I feel like there's so, so many of us, I'm sorry I'm going so long, really I don't really, if you buy this great, I feel this is the Lord. I honestly feel this is the Lord. I, I feel it's a prophetic word for most of you, for many of you at least. You just need to be free to be yourself. Honestly, just be yourself. Do us all a favor and be yourself. You know, if you're not smart, don't act smart. I mean, look at Samson, you know? Some of you are like, I'm too ugly. It's like, look at Abraham Lincoln. Dude, that dude was ugly. You know, the truth is, Abraham Lincoln was so ugly that a 10-year-old girl, when he was running for Senate, stood in the campaign line and said, Mr. Lincoln, when he went to shake her hand, he said, Mr. Lincoln, you are so ugly, sir. If I were you, I would grow a beard and cover up your face. And he did. That's how ugly he was. And you know, he's the most popular person in American history. You read it, number one in American history, President Lincoln. And he was ugly. I'm just saying, you can be ugly and change history. Or overweight. <laughs> anyway, would anyone like to have this? Okay, whoever, just come get it, please. There we go. You're awesome. Though. And you're beautiful, so that part didn't... Yes. And, and this is a, a book that I co-authored with about five, six other authors. James Gall, Cheon, Heidi Baker, called God's Supernatural Power in You. It's actually the first time I've ever advertised it. it was, it's been out for a year. Yeah, why don't I... Is, anyone, is it anyone's birthday? Today, I mean. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I had a birthday this year. Is anyone's birthday? Is it? What? Yesterday? Tomorrow? Come on, babe. Come get it. Come get it. It's your birthday? I won't ask you how old you are. I bet I could guess, though. 27. Okay. 25. 22. 29. Oh, my God. Prophetic's not working. Word of knowledge sucks right now, so... Okay, we got, what, 40 minutes or something. Um, turn to uh, Acts 15. I want to talk to you about the, a word the Lord gave me for the church. This is not uh, specific to Turlock, although obviously it has application in every church, hopefully. But this is a word the Lord gave me um, coming home uh, a while back from, um, gosh, I think I was, I can't remember where, Spain, I think. But I was coming home from, uh, from uh, this place, and I was in that I was in that, uh, I was in that, you know, fall, I was falling asleep. You know that twilight zone between when you're awake and when you're asleep? You're kind of only, you know, you're aware. You're not all the way asleep, but you're also not all the way awake. I'm in that place in, in a plane. I'm, just, I'm laying against the seat, and I'm just, just almost ready to sleep. And the Lord speaks to me. And He says to me, um, I, uh, I gave a man a church... And I don't want you to think about what man this is. It doesn't really matter because this has happened over and over in history. So this isn't about a person. Um, but the, the Lord gave me a name. But this has happened over and over in history. Like this is the history of the church. I gave a man a church and that church became a fellowship of churches. And that fellowship of churches been, became a catalyst to a movement. And that movement became worldwide and got bigger than the church. And the movement began to redefine the church. And, the, and this man had to make a choice. Whether or not he was going to cut off the movement or let the movement redefine him. And he made a choice to cut off the movement instead of allow the movement to redefine the church. And then the Lord said to me, you, not, not me, we, church, that he said, you are at the same, you're at the threshold of that same door in history once again. Where what I'm about to do through the church, what I'm about to do through this, through this church, I'm about to cause you to be a catalyst to a movement that is so huge that it will literally redefine the church. And, and, uh, and, the, and so I began to think through that, and the Lord started talking to me about Acts 15, which I've read Acts 15 Literally hundreds of times, the book of Acts is one of my very favorite books in the Bible. I teach, about, teach, teach um, from it all the time. And um, so the Lord took me to Acts 15, and I, and I saw Acts 15 from a completely different perspective. And let me just kind of give you, Acts 15 is where the, um, where the apostles come to figure out whether or not the Gentiles need to get circumcised and keep the law. And we'll read parts of that in just a minute. But I, the, that, that night on the plane, I saw Acts 15 from a completely different perspective. A way I never, never really understood what was happening there. In Acts 15, here's what's happening. In the 8th chapter of Acts, the, the apostles get persecuted. Remember Saul's persecuting the church? And the, and the church scatters. So all the leaders except for the apostles scatter. And Philip goes down to Samaria, which is a Gentile city. Are you with me? 
And he preaches in Samaria. And you remember what happened. Simon the sorcerer gets saved. And this whole city gets saved. And all these people who are not Jews come into the kingdom, right? And it says when the, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. Which, let me just give you a little parenthesis. I think it's a beautiful picture of how the fivefold ministry should work together. We see Philip, who's the only named evangelist, He's bringing the word of God of Samaria. And it says he's doing signs and wonders and miracles to the place that the, that the occultist, the, the, the key occultist, Simon the sorcerer, who was called the great power of God, when he sees the, the demonstrations, uh, the supernatural demonstration of, of Philip, God working through Philip, he goes, man, this has got to be God. This is amazing. This has to be God. And he turns to the Lord. And it says when the, uh, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that, that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. And I love this because the power of God displaces the powers of darkness, but it's the government of God that replaces the powers of darkness. And I love that they're in the middle of this, you know, Philip is preaching this great you know, revival, and the city is wholly coming to, to Christ, and an angel comes to Philip and goes, time for you to leave, I brought Peter and John in, go. And he meets, you know, remember this, he meets the Ethiopian eunuch, on the desert road, and you know, the Bible doesn't tell you this part, but history says that Ethiopia had a great revival through this eunuch who uh, was the, was the uh, um, eunuch to the queen of, of uh, Ethiopia. Anyway, the point is this, is that I love the way, in, in that case, the threefold ministry, the evangelist, or the twofold ministry, the evangelist and the apostles are working together. The evangelist is bringing the, the power of God. The apostles are coming in, developing the government of God. Because how many of you know that if you cast out a demon, seven spirits more evil than the first come back? And so I love the fact, unless you, unless you, once you, you know, once someone is, once someone gets delivered, they need to be filled with the Spirit so that what's governing them is no longer demons. Because if you leave that place empty, all that happens is they get repossessed, and the condition of that person, Jesus said, is worse than the first. In my opinion, the same things happen in cities. We have, we have great crusades where all these people get saved, all this stuff happens, but there's no government set up. And what happens? The enemy comes back with a vengeance. He doesn't really like getting kicked out of his house. Anyway, that's a little parenthesis. So let's go on. So the Samaritans are getting saved. And there's you know, thousands of them, of course. And then, um, and then, and then this, this incident happens in Acts chapter 10, where Cornelius, who's a Gentile, a Roman centurion, he has an angel visitation. Do you remember this? And the angel says, you know, send to Joppa and find Peter and have him come to you for your prayers and your alms have gone up to the Lord for a memorial. So send to Joppa and bring Peter. So in the meantime, while, while he's having an angel visitation, while Cornelius is having an angel visitation, Peter is in a trance simultaneously at the same time. And Peter sees this curtain, this sheet come down with a whole bunch of unclean animals on it. Do you remember this? And God says, kill and eat. And he's like, oh, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, what I've called clean, no longer call unclean. Do you remember this? And it happens three times. And he comes out of the trance and he's like, I have no idea what that means. And while he's thinking, I have no idea what that means, Cornelius' guys knock on the door. 
Through a word of knowledge, they get the exact address of Peter's house. It's pretty amazing. No GPSs. <laughs> so I guess they do have God positioned sense. So, uh, so they get to the right house, and the, and Peter's. You know, they, they they ask for Peter. Peter comes to the door, and he's like, "They're Gentiles. Gentiles and Jews are not supposed to talk to one another." So they're Gentiles, and so Peter's like, and they're like, they want Peter to come to Cornelius' house. He's like, you know, I, and then he goes, oh, I know what this vision's about. No longer call unclean what I call clean. So he goes with them, and, and he goes to Cornelius' house, and he starts to share with Cornelius. He goes, what did you bring me here for? And he tells them, Cornelius tells him about the angel visitation, and he said, call, go, you know, get Peter. And this thing happens. Now, this is kind of important, and I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. But Peter starts preaching to, to them. And it says, and well, this is chapter 10 of Acts. And while Peter's preaching, while Peter's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on them. Just, just follow me for a minute, and I'll tell you why this is important. Let's think, let's think through, maybe Peter has a two-hour message or a three-hour message. It's probably a pretty long message because the Gentiles don't know anything about Christ. So he... Maybe he has a three-hour message. And an hour and a half into his message, the Holy Spirit, while he's speaking, falls on the Gentiles. And they start speaking in tongues. And Peter's like, well, we might as well baptize them in water because they're already baptized in the Holy Spirit. Are, are you following me? And so all these Gentiles start getting saved. Now, how many of you know that there's a, there's a lot more Gentiles in the world than there are Jews? So the Gentiles are getting saved first by the hundreds, then by the thousands, then by the multiple thousands. You know, Paul is preaching in the synagogue, and when they reject him, he says, okay, I'm going to the Gentiles. Remember, that's what causes a riot. And so there's all these Gentiles getting saved. And now there's the Pharisees. Now, how many know there's good Pharisees and bad Pharisees? The, good, the bad Pharisees walked, were, were with Jesus. But what happened is, after the resurrection, it says that many of the Pharisees believed. Are you with me? Okay, so in Acts 15, we have Pharisees who believe. Okay, these are good guys now. These are not bad Pharisees. These are good Pharisees. They know the Bible, and they know God. Which is kind of cool. Because in this culture, most people are illiterate. So these people actually know the Bible, which is kind of cool to have someone who knows the Bible, who can actually read. And so the Pharisees... Are getting, I mean, the Pharisees get saved, and all these Gentiles start getting saved. Now, this is what's really important for you to realize. These are not Judeo-Christian ethic Gentiles. Like, for instance, if, if you went to, if you met a, a person on a plane who was an atheist in America, the, he, would know the, he would know the Genesis story of creation. I'm not saying he would, obviously he wouldn't believe it, or he wouldn't be an atheist. But he would know the story. He would probably know the story of David and Goliath, and he'd probably know who Noah was, or who you think Noah was, and he'd definitely know who Adam and Eve are. You're, you're following me, right? I mean, the main characters of the Bible, anyone in America would know those characters. They may not know much about them, but they would know their Bible characters, and they'd probably know something about the story of Esther. Those kind of they would he, they'd probably know who Jesus was. They, I mean, they basically would have some idea of what you believe that they don't believe. But these people who are getting saved, these people are from Corinth, they're from Ephesus, they're from Colossus, they're from Philippi. These are these these people who are getting saved 
are Greek mythologists. They believe in polytheism. You know, the, the belief of many gods. Are you with me? These people in, in Ephesus they, is where the, the goddess Diana is. Remember that? The statue they worship. In Corinth, Corinth is the seat of, of Greek mythology. So these people are not people who have a Judeo-Christian ethic. Most of these people would not even know who Adam and Eve is. See, they've studied Greek mythology their whole life. For generations, they would, they would know about the, quote, the gods. Like most of us would have no understanding of the gods. You know, we see Hercules and all these different movies, and we don't realize, like, that's Greek mythology right there. These, these people would understand that, but they would have no... It's so important that you get this. They would have no idea who Adam and Eve are. They would have no idea who Abraham was, who Esther was, who David and Goliath. They wouldn't know those stories at all. Because they've been steeped in Greek mythology for generations. These are the people who are getting saved. And so what happens is, is that they're getting saved, like Cornelius gets saved. Holy Spirit falls on them. And the Pharisees who are now believers, these Pharisees who are believers, they go, listen, listen, we have to teach these people the Bible. This is not okay. They have to get circumcised. They have to keep the rules. Because the church, before Acts 15, the church is basically Judaism with the Holy Spirit and Jesus superimposed over it. Are you with me? They're still worshiping in the synagogue. They're still, they only have, only have the Old Testament. They're still reading the Old Testament. They're, they're, basically, they're, ba- they're basically Jews with, with Judaism, with the Holy Spirit, you know, working through them. And, and, and they've received Jesus Christ as their Savior. You've got to get this. This is really important. It, it isn't about history. This is about us. I'm going to tell you about us in a few minutes. So these are the people, so these other people are getting saved, and these people are Greek mythologists, they're polytheists. They're getting saved, and the, the Pharisees who, who have memorized the Bible, they say, these people need to know the Bible. These people, they need, they need to get circumcised. These people need to keep the law. And so they have a big argument with Paul and Barnabas. And they say, okay, let's go to Jerusalem to where all the senior apostles are and let's talk through this. And so Acts 15, let's pick it up and and just read through what happens here. It says this. Some men came from Judah and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great uh, dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others uh, of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing much joy to the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, okay, you understand? These are the good Pharisees. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and direct them to, deserve the, to observe the laws of Moses. And the apostles and elders came in to look, came to look into this matter. And there, when they had much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brethren, you know in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the hearts... 
and testified to them, saying, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did us. And He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Therefore, now, why do we put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the, Gentile, uh, neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now, therefore, I'm sorry, but we believe that we are saved through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, in the same way that they are also. All people and all the people kept silent, and they were listening as Paul and Barnabas, to Paul and Barnabas as they were relating the signs and wonders that God was doing through them among the Gentiles. And after they stopped speaking, James answered and said, Brother, listen to me. Simon's related how God first concerned himself about taking among the Gentiles a people for his name. With, these, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return. I will re- rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Here's the key Old Testament verse. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it's my judgment that we don't trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols. Get this. They, they can abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, from things that are strangled, and from blood. From Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in synagogues every Sabbath. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose from those among them and to send to Antioch Paul and Barnabas, Judas who's called Barbaeus, and uh, Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent a letter. And basically they sent a letter to the Gentiles saying, listen, this is the four things you, you can't do. You can't eat things that are strangled. You can't eat the animals that have, the, have blood in them. You can't eat things that are sacrificed to idols, and you can't fornicate. I don't know if you're getting this. He took Paul, uh, the Paul, I'm sorry. James takes all of this, all of these pages, and he boils them down to four rules. Three of them have to do with what you eat. Are you getting this? And the Gentiles come to God. And here's what happens. The church starts to be defined as the way. In other words, no longer do they call it the church, they call it the way. In fact, if you read, uh, let me give you a few verses. Acts 19.9 And when, the, some of, uh, when some of them becoming hardened, disobedient, speaking evil of the way, Acts 19.23 At that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way, Acts 24:14. But this I admit that according to the way, Paul says, Acts 24:22. But Felix, having a more excellent knowledge of the way, and it goes on like that nine times in the in the book of Acts, the church is now called the way. What, what's happening? What are they going to call the church? Because they have Gentiles coming by the hundreds of thousands to God. Are you with me? And these Gentiles are are they're ex polytheists. And they receive Jesus. But they don't know the Bible. Are you following me? And and the Pharisees said, Listen, listen, we cannot let these people come in without without knowing this book and without keeping these rules. And the the apostles, they're like, No, listen, we haven't been able to keep these rules. We're going to let them in. And we're just going to give them four rules. Don't eat things that are strangled. Don't eat things with blood in them. Don't fornicate. And don't eat things that were sacrificed to idols. Those are the four things we're going to give them. 
And that all of a sudden, the Gentiles start to come in by the thousands. But here's the crazy thing. They start to redefine the church. In other words, the church, not from the inside, but from the outside, looks completely different. It's much, it's much of what happened in the Jesus movement, if you will. In the Jesus movement, hippies started coming to God. I mean, they would have LSD trips, and God would meet them. Jesus would meet them on LSD trips. Some of you young people, this is good history for you, because you, you wouldn't know this unless someone taught you this. But this was common. Like, they would, be on, they would be on drugs, and Jesus would come to them while they're on a trip, on an LSD trip, and lead them to Him. In fact, one of the biggest struggles we had in the Jesus movement is that we had a hard time teaching the hippies that they didn't need drugs to have God encounters because that's the way they came to God. No, it's a true statement. They came to God through an LSD trip, and therefore they didn't... They, I mean, to us, we're like, yeah, yeah LSD, yeah, that's bad. They were like, that's how I found Jesus. I mean, by the hundreds of thousands... Hippies were coming to the church. Chuck Smith, it's really interesting. Lonnie Frisbee goes to uh, this little church. It's about two, three hundred people in, um, you know, in uh, uh, Calvary Chapels in uh, Costa Mesa. And these hippies, uh, Ch- um, Lonnie Frisbee comes to Chuck Smith's church, about three hundred people. And, and all these hippies start coming with Lonnie Frisbee. And before you know it, the church that was about three hundred people. Within 18 months, it's three thousand people. Full of hippies. And, and there's this famous board meeting that they have with Chuck Smith. And the elders at, at Calvary Chapel say to Chuck, these hippies are coming without shoes. Many of them aren't wearing shirts. They have long hair. They stink. And they're, 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 they're destroying our carpet. And we shouldn't let anyone in here that doesn't have shoes. And, and this was a real conversation they were having. And Chuck Smith stands up, this famous board meeting, and, he, and they say that he slammed his hands on the, on the table and he said, then pull out the carpet and turned around and walked out. In other words, they will not have to be conformed to the image of the church. We will let the hippies come in. And what happened is, is those hippies began to redefine the church. And what was called the church is now called the Jesus Movement. Are, are you with me? Because men like Chuck Smith opened the door and said, I don't care what it looks like, they're coming in. <laughs> you, you, um, turn to 1 Corinthians 12. This is really interesting. At least it is for me. If it's not for you, then just pretend it is. I never realized it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I've written two books on 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. I've written two books on the gifts of the Spirit. And never realized that 1 Corinthians 12, what I wrote about, is actually not exactly true. No, I mean, what I wrote is true. <laughs> but the way I viewed 1 Corinthians 12 is not true. And, and let me tell you why. Look, at, uh, look down at your Bible in 1 Corinthians 12. See where it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be aware, unaware, I mean. Look down at the word gifts. If, you're, if you have a good translation, that word gifts should be italicized. Because it's not in the original translation. 
You know why it's not in the original translation? Because I figured out that last year that, this, that Paul was not writing about the gifts of the Spirit. He's writing to the Corinthians. And listen to what he says. Now concerning the spiritual brethren, now concerning the spiritual brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. You know when you were pagans, when you were pagans, keyword, when you were pagans, you were led astray by various idols, mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. I always wonder what that meant. No one speaking by the Spirit of God can say Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Now, I've met lots of people who don't know God who can say Jesus is Lord. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, what's, he, what's his point? Now look at the next verse. Therefore, okay, uh, verse 4. There are a variety of gifts, but the same... Come on. There are a variety of ministries, but the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God, who works all things and all persons. Um, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For one is given the word of wisdom through the... Come on. To another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another affected of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. I never understood what Paul was saying until about two months ago when the Lord began to talk to me about this. I realized that he's speaking to Corinthians who were polytheists. In other words, they believe in multiple gods. Like they have the god of the harvest, they have the god of fertility, they have the god of the sun, they have the god... You get it. They, everything had a god. Hundreds. They had hundreds of gods. These Corinthians found Christ. Right? They're saved. And they're moving in the gifts of the Spirit. In miracles and healing and prophecy. The only thing is, is that they have the wrong theology. They think that the gift of healing is one god. The gift of miracles is another God. They think the gift of prophecy is another God. Why? Because they're polytheists. That's why Paul says, listen, you can't say Jesus is Lord unless you have the Holy Spirit. And you can't say Jesus is cursed and, be, and have the Holy Spirit. What's he talking about? He's talking about in Greek mythology, their gods would fight. They would fight for dominance and it's like, it's like the Chinese. You know, they have the year of the cat. They have the... Well, whatever... whatever God is dominant that year. It becomes that God's year. Are you with me? So their gods all fought one another. He starts out by saying, listen, when you were pagans, you were led astray by various idols. Now, no one can say Jesus is accursed by the Spirit. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except for by the Spirit. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, I want to teach you about the Spirit world. Not about the gifts of the Spirit. I want to teach you about the Spirit world. See, the spirit world that you come into is not like the spirit world you came out of. There's only one spirit. There's one God, one spirit. Listen, there's a gift of healing, one spirit. Same spirit. There's a, he doesn't say one spirit. He says same spirit. Very important. There's the gift of healing, same spirit. Gift of miracles, same spirit. Listen, there's different effects, same Lord. There's different ministries, same God. And he keeps using same, same. Key word in that text is same. Not spirit, same. Because what he's teaching them is that they're moving in the gifts of the spirit 
but they have the wrong theology. This is crazy. These people are speaking in tongues, and this person over here is prophesying, and they think that's two different spirits. That's two different gods. They're moving. They're the most spiritual church in the Bible, but they don't know. They don't have no theology for it. Are you getting this? They have no theology for it. In fact, they have worse than no theology. They have bad theology. They don't even know that Jesus. They have God. They have Jesus as God, but they have the manifestations as many different other little gods, little spirits, if you will. And Paul's like, no, no, listen. Listen, that's not the way, that's the way the pagan world worked. But that's not the way, that's not the way the spirit realm that you came into works. See, when the, in the book of Acts, in Acts 15 we just read, they let the Gentiles in, right? Peter goes, listen, you know, I went down to Cornelius' house. It wasn't my fault. What my fault? You know, because it says that the next time, when he's, the next day, that all the brethren contended with him and said, what are you doing at the Gentiles? I was like, what my fault? She came down in a trance, kill, eat. I said, I won't do it. Man, Gentile has angel visitation. I didn't know what to do. So I went with him. I get to Cornelius' house. He tells me this experience. I'm like, I guess I'm supposed to preach to him. I start preaching to him. Listen, listen, you're not even going to get this. I didn't finish my message. And the Holy Spirit fell on him just like he fell on us. And I thought, well, I must. I guess we should baptize him because God chose him. It's not my fault. And so when they, get to, when they get to the book of Acts, Paul's like, we're having the same experience. Barnabas is like, he's, he's telling the truth. He's, God is doing great miracles among the Gentiles. Among the Gentiles. Like these people that are unclean, that we, we can't touch. We're not even supposed to have a relationship with them. It's not our fault. They're coming to our meetings. And James goes, well, we might as well let them in. But here's the point. They don't know why they're letting them in. They just know they're letting them in. It's years later. It's, tw- it's 25, 30 years later that Paul writes Romans, Galatians, Colossians. Are you with me? And he writes back. He's not telling. Listen, from our side, he's like, we're like, oh, this is how this is how you get saved. You know, we read the book of Romans. We're like, this is how you get saved. But Paul is not writing about how you get saved. He's writing about how they got saved. And he uses Abraham, and he said Abraham is the father of faith. Abraham believed God and has reckoned him as righteousness. Now, there was a lot of people who were the father of faith. Why did he use David or Moses or, you, 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 you know, all these guys? David, man after God's heart. Why does he say Abraham? You know why he says Abraham? Because Abraham was, Abraham was born 400 years before the Bible was written. 400 years before Moses. Abraham believed God. You, you, you have to understand. Are you, got, are you getting this at all? Abraham didn't have a Bible. He didn't know anything about the Trinity. He didn't know about the tribulation. He didn't know about the rapture. Come on. All these things were like, you, know, you, have, to, you have to know this to be a Christian. You have to have an opinion about, is it pre-trib? Is it post-trib? He didn't know any. He just believed God 
believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he goes, I know how, the, I know, listen, in Romans, Paul's writing, I know how they got in now. I know how they got in. They got in just like Abraham got in. Abraham didn't know a dang thing about God. He just knew God. And he believed God, so he was reckoning him as righteous. And that's how these Gentiles, listen, I know how they got in now. Remember we had that Acts 15 over there? We had this big council and we're trying like, should we let them in? Should we not let them in? Well, you know, they got to know the rules. They don't have to know the rules. And yeah, it was really confusing. I know how God let them in. They're just like Abraham. They believed God. They don't know much, but they believe God, and it was reckoned to them as righteousness. And therefore, now I understand, it's not people who are circumcised in their flesh, but circumcised in the heart. These are the, this, is, this is the Jerusalem from above. This is the new Jerusalem. And he starts, he starts giving language to something that happened 30 years before. Now, we're reading it from this side. And we go, listen, you, if, you, if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth... And, you know, we have all this language. And we're like, These are, this is how people get saved. Well, yes and no. It's not how they got saved. They didn't know nothing. And here's one question I have. How much do you have to know to know God? Because Peter doesn't get to finish his message. Man, this is really huge for me. I'm not, I'm not even sure I have my brain wrapped around this. See, for us, when somebody gets saved, we, it's important that they know a bunch of stuff. Because we say, we think in, in, in American culture, really mostly globally, we think people get saved by understanding the Word of God. If that's true, then I don't know why the Holy Spirit didn't let Peter finish his message before he fell on them. And what I'm getting at is this. Contrary to popular belief, experience most often precedes knowledge. That people often experience things that they don't have words for. I know, we hate that. I know I'm probably going to be on some page of this. I, I don't even like it. But God does it. I like that God does it. I, I don't like that people don't know the Bible and call themselves believers. I especially would have a hard time with someone who believes in Greek mythology and says, I'm a Christian. I'm like, uh, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> Listen, I have this prophetic word, and here's the word. The animals are coming. In Acts 2.17, it says, In the last days I'll pour out my Spirit on some flesh. It says, all flesh. All flesh. Isn't that interesting? We're like, yeah, it doesn't mean all. See, the original Greek word. See, it's in the context of, well, he said all flesh. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, listen to this. He's quoting an Old Testament prophet. The Hebrew writer is quoting an Old Testament prophet. And the Old Testament prophet says, there's coming a day. In fact, he says it this way. In the last days, they will not say, know the Lord. And they won't teach his brother, everyone, saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know the Lord, from the least to the greatest. Did you get that? 
He's saying there's coming a day where they won't say, know the Lord, because they will all know the Lord. From the least to the greatest. You go, well, that's in the millennium. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, in the millennium, they'll say, they won't have to say, know the Lord, because everyone knows the Lord. It says, in the last days, they will, say, they will not have to say, know the Lord. When did the last day start? Well, Peter said, Acts 2.17, In the last days I'll pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. We're already in the last days. We're not in the last day, but we're in the last days. Is it possible that God wants to pour out His Spirit while you're alive on all flesh? On, listen, on all flesh. And I, listen, I'm not talking about... See, I'm not talking about the, you know, the Africans in the deepest villages of Africa... You know, who, you know, obviously, yes, that's awesome. We work a lot in Africa. I'm talking about, I'm talking about people and unreached people groups that live among us. People who, who are, who are, you know, atheists, agnostics, and more importantly, people that are new agers. And here's my prophetic word for this next five years. The next move of God, the greatest, one of the greatest moves of God is going to happen among the Mormons. I'm telling you. God is going to pour His Spirit out among the Mormons. And just like the, uh, it was the, was it the, um, something Church of God. Someone help me. It was a cult. No, I think it was United Church of God. Anyway, they were a cult. This, the Son takes, Worldwide Church of God, that's what it is, the Cheon's building was owned by the Worldwide Church of God. The Worldwide Church of God was started by this man. I forget his name now. It doesn't really matter. He died. His son took over. His son has an experience with God. This Worldwide Church of God is totally a cult. His, his father starts this movement. The son, his father dies. Son takes over. Son has an encounter with Jesus. Jesus instructs him in the way of the Lord. And the whole, the whole denomination comes to God. They're all believers now. And I want to, I want to prophesy this. I just, I've been prophesying this for about two months. The, you know, the, the Mormon church is led by prophets. They trust their prophets. And I believe that the Lord is going to touch their prophets and the whole Mormon movement is going to move in to the kingdom. Now, listen, they may not move in exactly how you'd like them to move in initially. <laughs> See, that's what's hard. They, they may bring the doctrine of the covenants with them or some kind of stuff that we're like, ha, no, ha, ha. You know, you, you might think that I'm saying that's okay. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm prophesying it's going to happen. I'm prophesying that it's going to happen and that our next challenge is Acts 15. That, we're, that we are at the threshold of the greatest move of God in human history. And God has been basically been touching people in a way where they get to know the Word and disciple in the Word, and it's good. It's all good. You understand, like, that, I like that. I can raise, raise with that, and I can wrap my brain about, around that. But here's my prophetic declaration, that the Lord is going to touch all flesh. He's going to begin to touch all mankind. And they're going to be coming in, and the animals are coming. You know, that's why Jesus said, preach this gospel to every living creature. He didn't just say humans. Because some of the people you won't be able to define as male or female. That God's going to touch a, the community. He's going to touch people you said, God can't touch. God's going to, watch me. Watch me. And I'm telling you, for, the young, for you young people that are, 
If you don't know the history of the charismatic movement, which was different than the Jesus movement, they rode on top of each other, but they weren't the same movement. The charismatic, in the Jesus movement, we taught that the Catholics were the mother harlot in the book of Revelation. How many of you are old enough to remember that? That, that was not, listen, that wasn't some side you know, camp that believed that. The main core of the church believed in the Jesus movement that the Catholic church was the mother harlot in the book of Revelation. And then something crazy happened. The Holy Spirit poured, the Lord poured out the Holy Spirit on the Catholics. On the Catholics. Yeah, you're, you're, you're excited. We, at the be, in the beginning, did not believe, how many of you are old enough to remember this in this room? We did not believe it was the Lord. You know why? Because they had bad doctrine. From our perspective, they had bad doctrine. And we're like, that's not a real move of God. That cannot happen. See, you have to, have the, you have to know. You have to know the book. God would not touch people who, are, who have, have worship Mary. They have statues in their... No! Who sprinkle. No, no! No, God cannot do that. He would not do that. Who don't teach the Bible in their church. No! God won't do that. And then Holy Spirit goes, yeah, watch me. Watch me. And he touches the Catholics. I mean, by the tens of thousands, the Catholics begin to come into the kingdom and begin to have born-again experiences, begin to have, and begin to describe their experiences. And by the way, for, ye, for hundreds of years, Catholics have kept the, the Word of God alive. The monks were having mystical experiences way before the Protestants ever even knew what it was to prophesy. And that's the truth. There's always been uh, an element of, of spiritualism, I'm talking, using that word in a positive sense, in Catholicism. It always has been. I, I mean, you could, I'll tell you what, you read through some of the history of the Catholic Church and you find more spiritual people than you find any place in our movement. I mean, people who had experiences of God where God would actually literally take them up in the air, where they would levitate. And I don't mean demonically. I mean, where the crazy stuff would happen, where, where they would call... You know, they had, God would give them power over the elements, like the animals, and they would call for the, animal, the birds, and the birds would come and land on their shoulders. I mean, just, just over creation. God would just give them power over creation. That was all happening in Catholicism. Are you with me? I'm not condoning any, any doctrine. I'm simply saying that God knows how to touch people in spite of what we believe. <laughs> and, and, and you better get ready. Because like Chuck Smith, you're going to have to make a decision of what's real and what isn't real. See, the problem is, is that the real, the wheat and the tares, they look alike. Yeah. I'm not preaching like, you know, relative truth. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not tell, I'm not saying there's no absolute truth. I'm not saying the Bible isn't important. I guess you could read that from one message. Obviously, if you get paid to teach the Bible, it's pretty stupid to run around telling people the Bible doesn't matter. Because it does a little while and you're out of a job. So you, you would have to know I don't believe that. I'm simply saying that God is going to move in such a way that people who we have relegated to, like, those people God can't touch, God's going to go, I'm touching them. I'll tell you who else is going to come in by the tens of millions, the Muslims. They're already coming in. 
I'll tell you, there's a secret movement among the Muslims. Because, see, if you become a Christian as, as a Muslim, it, it, see, a, a Muslim isn't just like, you can be a Christian and hang out with unbelievers and all that, you know, and you're pretty much, yeah, they might think you're a little weird, but in our country, not a big deal. If you convert to Christianity as a Muslim, you can't get a job. You can't get a job. No one's going to hire you in a Muslim country. It's, it's illegal. They might even kill you depending on what country you're from. So, so to, to say that you are a Christian in a Muslim culture is pretty radical. It's one of the reasons why I think President Obama is a real believer. Because if you're a Muslim and you convert to Christianity, from the Muslim's perspective, that's not good. You're ostracized. You are, you're, 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 you know, you're the great Satan. So it's not something you want to tell all your friends. You know, the truth is, if you, if you look at uh, when Jesus was, uh, walked the earth, it says that many of the Pharisees secretly believed in Jesus. In fact, if you look, it says that Joseph uh, of Arimathea, who took Jesus' body, it says he was a secret believer. And it says Nicodemus went to Jesus at night and that he believed in him secretly. And you'll notice that Jesus didn't rebuke him for that. I'm not saying it's okay or it's not okay. I don't like when Christians like, I don't want to, I want to pretend I'm not a Christian. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to give place for that. I'm simply saying that Jesus understands culture. And that he understands circumstances. And he understands that Nicodemus is believing secretly, but little by little he's converting the other Pharisees. Because he is secretly having a relationship with God, he can have a, a, a covert encounter with the rest of the Pharisees and little by little that's how most of the Pharisees are getting saved they're getting saved by the Nicodemuses of the world who believe secretly and are bringing this doctrine to their friends who are all other Pharisees I think we're going to be shocked by who finds Christ in the next 10 years I predict that there's another Jesus movement coming and this is what I mean by Jesus movement I mean Jesus movement in this sense that it's going to touch unreached people Obviously, there isn't a lot of hippies around. That wouldn't be a movement. That would be a boop. <laughs> so we're going to make another Jesus movement. God's going to touch hippies. Okay, so there's 12 of them. <laughs> you know what I mean. God's going to touch people who the rest of the church said, those people are not, those people are on drugs. They're dirty. They don't, they're, they're, they're anti-government. They're anti-culture. They're, they're, they don't like structure. They're definitely not going to come into a place where everyone in those days is wearing shirt and ties and suits. You've you got to get how big the Jesus movement is. These guys are coming in, no shirts, you know, long hair, dirty, you know, you know, no shoes, and they're walking into a culture. They're walking into a culture that is sterilized. You know why? Because they found God and they, they didn't care that they were hanging out with people who had suit and ties. They didn't care because they could see the spirit that touched them was on these people. So they were willing to be friends with people who totally did not have their, hey, dude, what's happening, man? Smoked a doobie last night culture. <laughs> they didn't care. They went from, oh, those guys, dude, psh, those, guys, those guys are squares. They went from that to coming in and singing hymns with the rest of the church. And you know what happened? The rest of the church changed. 
And pretty soon you got Chuck Smith wearing Levi's and connecting with the culture. Pretty soon people weren't wearing suit and ties in most places. You know why? You know why? Because the hippies weren't. Because the people that Jesus was touching weren't dressed up. I'm not saying that lots of places didn't stay like that. I'm just saying you suddenly had the church even looked different on the outside. Suddenly you didn't wear your Sunday best to Sunday. Because, yeah, because it's never been about that. And the hippies taught us that. The hippies taught us about the fact that you can be real and love God. 